0: I think it was William Shakespeare who once said that what's in a name, uh, a, a, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Do you remember this line? Well, I don't often disagree with the bard, but I, I do disagree with the bard. I think that ma- names actually matter. They really matter. Uh, those of us who are parents, we can consider and think about the weightiness and the pressure and the privilege of naming your children. It's a lot of pressure. You you don't want to mess that up, right? You don't want to give them a name that they're going to despise the rest of their life, right? Names don't just matter in life. Names matter in the Holy Scriptures. If you think about from beginning to end, God reveals himself by giving names that his people can call him. And he gives names even names and titles concerning his beloved son, the Savior. And so this morning, as we think about this idea of names, we find two names given in our passage concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important because because the names of Christ, they reveal who he is and what he's come to do. They also reveal who we are in light of who God is. They reveal our deepest needs as well. And so this morning, as we look into Matthew chapter one, what we're going to find is that every one of Christ's names, it's like the sparkling of a diamond. And as we turn the diamond, we're going to see more and more facets of his wonderful grace As the Savior. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25. If you're using the Pew Bible and you're not used to to reading the Bible, uh, you can turn to page 807 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please take the Bible there in the pew as a gift. Don't take your neighbor's Bible. That's stealing. Take the Pew Bible as a gift from our church to you. We want you to have a Bible you can read and understand. Now, just as a reminder, where have we been in Matthew's gospel? We were in the genealogy for 16 weeks. Not really, just two weeks. But what we saw is that Matthew introduces this book of beginnings, this book of Genesis. That's the word he uses. The book of the origin of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who's the son of David and the one who's the son of Abraham. And he gives us this whole list of names, his family tree, to help us understand who Jesus is. And in our passage this morning, we find two more names given to the Savior that ought to be a doorway for us to rejoice and to bless his name. Now, anytime you hear about the birth of a child, I imagine your response is to rejoice, right? Right. Well, that's why this passage was written. We're going to have a description of the birth of a child. And the names given here associated with the birth of this child ought to cause each one of us to rejoice. This is what Scripture says, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together... When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So this morning, our plan is just to walk through this passage verse by verse. And then I want to draw two implications of joy at the end. So if you're worried about outlines, just wait. An outline is coming. You just have to wait for it. I just wanted to start off there in verse 18. This is how Matthew begins this section. He uses the same similar word that he used in verse 1. He says, now this is the origin. This is the Genesis. This is, this is the, 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 the history of the advent of the Savior. Now the birth, verse, verse 18. Now the birth or the origin of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And as I mentioned earlier, you'll notice what follows what follows is the account of Christ's birth told from the perspective of Joseph. If you read Luke's gospel, the account of Christ's birth is told from the perspective of Mary. But here, Matthew wants us to understand as we will see that Joseph is not Jesus's biological father. He is a son of David. And by way of adoption, Jesus is in the legal line of the Davidic dynasty, right? That's what the genealogy said, the son of Joseph. And then we've got this, we've got Joseph, and then it says his, his wife, Mary, and that's who Jesus was born from. And so by way of adoption, Jesus is in the Davidic line legally, but he's born physically from his mother, Mary, who was also from the line of David. So, Matthew's gospel, Joseph's perspective. What do we learn about Joseph's perspective? Why why should we care about that? Well, verse 18, notice what it says. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Let's just stop there. In your Bible, it may say, instead of betrothed, it may say engaged. When we hear that word betrothed, we have to remember that it's something greater, more involved than simply the way we think of engagement today in the first century uh, among Jews betrothal was a much bigger deal and and you can see that even from the context it says that they're betrothed but do you notice even even down in verse 19 look at down in verse 19 he's called her husband you see that they're not married yet but he's called the husband so what's going on here well this is what it what it means Betrothal in the first century was different. I'm sure some of you, maybe, I hope not some of you, but most of us can understand and hear about maybe friends or family who've gotten engaged, and then for whatever reason, that engagement is broken off, right? Maybe that's happened to you. I hope not. And I'm not trying to trivialize the pain associated with that. But in the first century among the Jews, in order to break a betrothal, you had, actually had to have a certificate of divorce. It was, it, was a, it was a very intense thing. That's what later on we're going to told that Joseph wants to send her away quietly. So we'll, we'll get there. But what's going on? Listen to, listen to what one Bible scholar says. Quote, Betrothal in Israel was a legally binding contract signed by witnesses that could only be broken by divorce. If a man called the husband were to die the betrothed woman would be considered a widow. The marriage was not consummated until the wedding night when the bride ritually went from her parents' home to her husband's home. And it, betrothal was something that was arranged by two sets of parents. And it usually lasted about a year. So that's the context that Matthew is almost assuming we bring to this passage. So I want you to put yourself in Joseph's sandals. Look at verse 18. Before they came together, that is before they'd consummated their marriage, she was found, notice, to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, being a righteous man, and being unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So think about this. If you put this passage Over and against Luke chapter one, you kind of get the picture. He's engaged to Mary. She's a virgin. She comes to to Joseph and says, hey, Joseph, hey, honey, I'm pregnant, but I'm still a virgin. (laughs) And the baby inside of me is the Messiah. How do I know this? An angel told me, and this baby is not from a man, it's from the Holy Spirit. If you put Luke 1 and Matthew 1 together, that's what's going on. Now, if you're Joseph, what would you believe, right? He's called a a righteous man. He's called a just man. He was someone who trusted God, who believed his word. He was an honorable man. And never in the history of the world had a virgin conceived. This has never happened before. Infidelity happens all the time. The Immaculate Conception has happened once. So so we shouldn't be too hard on Joseph for wanting to send her away. In fact, Matthew wants us to be sympathetic to Joseph. Verse 19, he's a righteous man. Notice he doesn't do what what the custom was for that day. Custom for that day was he would take a woman, his his engaged, and then publicly before the, the whole town, divorce her as it were, putting her to shame. But Joseph doesn't want to do that. Joseph wants to end this relationship because he's assuming she's been, been unfaithful. He wants to do all this and resolve all this quietly and without any attention. As privately as possible. He wants to, as best he can, preserve her reputation as well as his own Now verse 20 This is when Joseph gets divine revelation regarding the child in Mary's womb But as he considered these things behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying Joseph son of David do not fear to take Mary as your wife And then here's the reason for That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The the very same thing that Mary, I assume, had mentioned earlier from the Holy Spirit, that this baby was not born from any type of unfaithfulness on Mary's side. It was actually because she was faithful that God chose her to be the mother of our Lord. So an angel, this messenger, comes to Joseph in a dream and confirms Mary's story. And we we read earlier the the, the angelic visit in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Same thing that that, that Matthew says here, that, 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 that the Christ is from the Holy Spirit. That's what Gabriel told Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. That's why when we confess our faith, we say That Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the what? Virgin Mary. We we confess that. That's what the Bible teaches. Because Jesus is immaculately conceived, because he's not born of Joseph, as it were, he is holy. He is. So as it were, the Messiah is born in the flesh. He's a human being just like us, but he's not of the flesh. He doesn't have a fallen human nature, like all sons of Adam before him and since do. And so the sinless son of God made flesh conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And I hope this use of the word Genesis over and over again, twice in this passage by Luke or by Matthew, I hope you can even hear echoes of new creation that are happening, right? Remember in Genesis 1, The Holy Spirit is hovering over the surface of the waters, over the surface of the deep as God creates all things. And here at the outset of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is creating and not a universe, but he's creating, as it were, the human nature of the very word of God made flesh. Because a new creation is about to happen. The Savior is about to come. So. Verse 21, we finally get the first name. If you're wondering, what were the two names? Well, here's the first one. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He gives us the explanation. For he will save his people from their sins. That's the first name. We're gonna unpack Jesus in a moment. So we're gonna move on. We'll come back to that in a minute. I simply want you to see that after he tells us Jesus, he's going to help us understand that everything he's talking about, this angel, everything that we're supposed to understand about Jesus and his identity is been written about in the old Testament scriptures. So right after he says this, notice in verse 22, Matthew gives a commentary and he says, all this stuff took place to fulfill. That's his favorite word. He used it 10 times in Matthew's gospel to fulfill what was written in Isaiah the prophet. Look, Isaiah 7:14. So look down at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and then he quotes Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he, he interprets that for us, which means God with us. That's the second name we're going to think about. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So h- how does righteous Joseph respond to all this? Verse 24, when Joseph woke from asleep, sleep, notice this. He did just as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Isn't that wonderful? So when we read Luke's account, Luke highlights the obedience, the faithfulness of Mary. Remember what she said at the end after hearing from the angel Gabriel everything that was going to happen? What was her response? She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And that's basically the response that Joseph has. He says, Okay, I'm going to do everything you told me to do. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son And he called his name Jesus. So what are we supposed to take away from this? There's there's lots we could take away. In fact, I I think as I meditated on these two words, Jesus, I have basically a two-point outline, Jesus and Emmanuel, but I'll give you a longer outline. But basically, as I meditated on those two words, Jesus and Emmanuel, those two words not only summarize these verses, verses 18 to 25, they not only embody the message of the gospel according to Matthew, they actually embody the message of the whole story of the Bible. And if you, if you don't believe me, I'm going to persuade you. In the next few minutes, I'm going to persuade you by God's grace. What does all this mean for us? I hope that you see in these two uh, names implications for eternal joy for you. This Advent, I hope by God's grace, you see in the name Jesus, our Emmanuel, reasons to rejoice. And all of us need reasons to rejoice these days. I don't think you've ever met anyone that has too many reasons to rejoice. But we have infinite reasons to rejoice in these two names. And I want to show that to you. So. Let's do this. Let's do this. this. Before we jump in, let me just make one comment about the name. Because you're thinking, why is he making such a big deal about names? Here's why. There is in the Bible an intimate link between God's name and God himself. Remember in the Ten Commandments, one of the things he tells us never to do is to take his what? His name in vain. When Moses wanted to see God's glory, remember, in the book of Exodus? What did God do? He says, okay, Moses, if nobody can see my glory because if you see it, you'll die. But I'm going to put you in a cleft of a rock and I'm going to go past. And I'm going to reveal my glory, just the the, the backside, the, the, the hind parts of my glory as it passes you by. And when he did that, what did God do? Exodus thirty-three, nineteen: 19, I will make my goodness, all my goodness, pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name. To, to make known God's name is to make known his goodness and his glory. To know God's name is to know something of his goodness, his grace and Glory. Think about this. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptized upon the profession of your faith, you bear God's triune name. And and what does Paul say? Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the what? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.17. The name of God in Christ is everything infinitely precious every word every deed every action every thought as a Christian ought to be to honor and extol and to magnify his name Amen. that's what it means I mean if you call yourself a what a Christian that's what it means we bear his name you bear his name in the office Kids, you bear his name in school. You bear his name in the checkout line at Target that's 90 miles long. You bear his name in the parking lot. You, listen, you even bear his name at the DMV. That's scary. You bear his name when you're speaking to your lost neighbor. You, you bear his name every single time you pray because you don't pray in your name. You end every prayer you've ever prayed in Jesus' name. So when God says, these are the names I've given to my son, you hold those like you're holding something infinitely precious. There are people around this world that have never heard his name. And God gives us two of his names in this passage. So I'm telling you all this because I hope you see how kind of God that it is that he's given us this that we can gather in his name and he says he says to us in in this book where two or three are gathered there I am in the midst of you so God is here with us by his spirit in his son he's here among us and he's exalted above all things his name and his word And so anytime you read a passage that talks about the name of the Lord, you should just pause and let Jacob set up an altar of remembrance because this is precious. None of that's in the sermon, but there you go. So let's let's jump in. What's the outline? Here's, Here's the point. Number one, first point, just two and we're done. Number one, rejoice. Rejoice because Jesus Is our Savior God for us? Rejoice because Jesus is our Savior God for us. I get this from verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And then we're told the explanation of that. What's the significance of that? For he will save his people from their sins. I said this last time. The word Jesus, it's just the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua. So Jesus is named Joshua. He that's a very popular Jewish name. The reason in the Gospels that Jesus is called the Jesus of Nazareth is to distinguish him from all the other Joshuas that were going around that day. So this is Jesus of Nazareth. Joshua just means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. But this is a very unusual Jewish boy, isn't it? This is different. Every other Jewish boy who's named Joshua was given that name to tell everybody, hey, listen, I'm named Joshua because our Lord saves, Yahweh saves. But notice, this is amazing. Look at again at the verse, verse 21. You shall call his name Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. The one who is born in this passage is the savior. He is Yahweh in the flesh. And I love even in the original, the word he is fronted for emphasis for he himself will save his people from their sins. This is astounding. For the first time ever, one who is named Joshua is not pointing to Yahweh. He himself is Yahweh. It's amazing. He will save his people. Notice that phrase from their sins. When you read the New Testament, many of the Jews in the first century were looking for salvation. And the salvation they expected was that a Messiah to come to wipe out the Gentiles, the Roman occupying force. And that was the salvation they were looking for. It was a political salvation. But notice Matthew from the very beginning, especially as he's writing to Jewish readers, he wants them to know that there is a greater problem in Israel than the Romans. There's a greater bondage and oppression That you face than just a wicked tyranny. You're in bondage to sin, Satan, and death. And you need a deliverer, a Savior who will be able to rescue you and save you from your sins. We, each one of us, if we will be saved, we must be saved from our sins. You must. You must be saved. All of us have rebelled against God. Every single one of us. Even if you don't believe in God, you have a certain standard that you hold yourself to and you hold others to. I imagine you wouldn't want someone stealing your car because that violates your standards, right? Well, you you have standards. Everyone does. You don't even you don't even live up to your own standards. I don't either. So if if there are standards and there is a God, just hypothetically. He's holy and good and we aren't. So there's none of us who could live up to his standards. None of us. We have all rebelled against him. We, we've all worshiped and served created things rather than the creature. Every single one of us, many times a day, have loved lesser things rather than loving the, the one who gives us life and breath and everything. We've all loved ourselves, but we haven't loved our neighbor as we ought. It's easy for us to love ourselves. It's hard for us to love our neighbors because we have a heart problem. That's what the new covenant is all about. And so this passage tells us not only who Jesus is, he's the savior, the one who saves from sins, but it reveals at the very beginning of Jesus's mission. He didn't come to just multiply bread and loaves. He didn't come to just heal physical sickness. He didn't come to do all these other things that we see him doing in the Gospels. That's not the the, the main point, the main mission of the Messiah. All of those things point to the greater need. He came into the world to save sinners and the fact friend if you're wondering well yeah but this whole thing that Jesus is God that's kind of a new thing that wasn't really what the first century you know Jewish people believed listen the fact that that Matthew a Jew calls Jesus the savior here is astounding Isaiah 45 says this turn to me and this is Yahweh talking turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth For I am God and there is no other. There's only one Savior. And Matthew says it's Jesus. He's ascribing to Jesus that which only God can do. Save sinners from their sins. And so from the very beginning, Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. And that ought to to make you think, wait a second. There was a promise of a deliverer, a Savior, as far back as Genesis 3.15. When God said that the seed, cru- the seed of Eve, the, the seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent and deliver his people and restore God's blessing to the world, he's finally come. A daughter of Eve named Mary has given birth to the promised Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious, glorious thing. Children, I want you to listen up. You know, the Exodus, you know, the story of the Exodus, God rescued his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Matthew wants you to see that in Christ coming into the world, he is bringing about a new Exodus just as the people were in bondage in Egypt over a tyrant who was murdering their sons. What we see is that in Matthew 1, he's announcing there's a new savior, a new Moses, a new deliverer is here. And what do we see in chapter 2? A tyrant named Herod who's trying to kill all the sons of Israel. And what does God do? He protects and preserves the savior. He takes him down into Egypt so that he can say, out of Egypt, I have called my son. God is doing a new and greater exodus. But how will this savior save? That's a question we need to ask. How will the savior save his people from their sins? We don't have time to read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, but let me just cut to the chase. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, what does Jesus do? On the night he was betrayed on Passover, when he's celebrating Passover with his disciples, he takes the cup, the cup of Passover. And what does he say? He says, this cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You see, he's the he's the Passover lamb. He's the sacrifice of atonement. He's the one who died in our place for our sins. And because he rose again, he now says that there's no name under heaven under which we must be saved except the name of Jesus. And so the way that we respond to this news is to rejoice in the Savior, but we respond by repenting of our sins and by receiving Him as our sacrifice, receiving Him in the empty hands of faith. That's what it means to respond to the good news. You can't just stay neutral The advent of the Messiah is a summons to the whole world to come to Christ by faith alone. So rejoice, rejoice this day. Why is Jesus called the Savior? Because he saves us from our sins and there is salvation in no one else. That's the first reason to rejoice. You can say amen if you want. The second reason and we're done is we ought to rejoice this day because Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. Rejoice because Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. If Jesus isn't, he's not just our savior who's come for us, he actually is a savior who's Emmanuel, God with us. We see that in verses 22 and 23. Now, I want you to think about that. Um, he quotes from Isaiah 7, uh, 14. We read that passage earlier in our, in, our, in, our, uh, in our service. If you go back and look at Isaiah chapter 7, sometime you should read chapter 7 all the way to chapter 9. It's one big unit in the, in, uh, I almost called it the gospel according to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. It, it is basically the gospel according to Isaiah. But if you go back and read the book of Isaiah, From chapter seven to chapter nine, it's one unit. And this is what you find. This is amazing. If you read through it, you find this. It's it's all, it's prophecy of just things that are happening in Israel, but also pointing forward to the Messiah. And this is what you find out. The Messiah in chapter seven, verse 14, right? He's gonna be born of a virgin, 714. He will possess the land, chapter eight, verse eight. He will thwart God's enemies, chapter 8, verse 10. He will appear in Galilee of the Gentiles, chapter 9, verse 1. He will be a great light to those who are living in the shadow of death, chapter 9, verse 2. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And he will be a son and a child, chapter 9, verse 6. And of his government and of his peace there will be no end because he will reign on the throne of his father David forever. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now, if you're going to come up with a description of Jesus, there it is. That's his resume right there. So Matthew right here is pointing his readers back to Isaiah to understand the identity of Emmanuel. Now, I don't know about you guys. Raise your hand if you're sick of the pandemic. Anybody? I am. and Some of you aren't. Some of you are enjoying it. But the rest of us are ready for it to be over, right? I think I can speak for all of us that when I think about all of the things that we've lost, the people that we've lost, um, there's so much loss associated with this season in the life of our country, in the life of this world. But I think about something as simple as just enjoying the presence of other people. That's been some of the hardest things to deal with on a daily basis is just being able to go back to the way it was where you could simply sit across from people and enjoy fellowship without all these hindrances. And I realized that probably over this last year, and two years, even spending face to face fellowship time with one another has become increasingly precious. If God has taught us anything, it's the joy Of being with one another. To spend time with one another. It's incredible. To be physically present. At those important moments in life. And what's amazing about Christmas. What's amazing about this passage. Is that God didn't just send a savior into the world. To die for us. Because of his great love for us. He dies in our place for our sins so that he might be with us forever. That part of his love towards us is not that he saves us and then says, "Okay, now just go be by yourself. He wants to dwell among us. And again, in that little name, Emmanuel, even though it only happens, occurs three times in the whole Bible, In that word, Emmanuel, God with us, is the story of the whole Bible. God made man in his image and he created Adam and Eve to live in his presence forever. But they rebelled. And what happened? Because of their sin, they were sent into exile into the east out of his presence. And the rest of the story of the scriptures is God's plan to gather a people through his son by his spirit in a new creation where we will dwell with him forever. And so when we hear the word Emmanuel, we're to hear the promise of the savior saying, I will be with you. I will be with you. I wonder over this last year or so, has your sense of God's presence with you, grown at all. I love that at the end of Matthew's gospel, he tells us that Jesus is Emmanuel here. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, he reminds some disciples who are doubting, who are perhaps discouraged. What does he tell us at the end of Matthew's gospel? After Christ has risen from the dead, he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and what make disciples of all nations, the whole world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then there's the promise. And lo, I am what? With you. I'm with you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. By his spirit, Christ is with his people Until he sees us face to face. The presence of Christ's power among us is the fuel for the mission of the church to the ends of the world. If he were to depart, the gospel would fall apart. But he has promised to be with us, to empower us all the way to the end. But then one day, this Emmanuel promises to return, doesn't he? He promises to return. I love Acts chapter 1. The angels tell the disciples this same Jesus. The same Jesus. The same risen Christ that the disciples beheld is coming again. Sometimes you read the Gospels and you think, well, I kind of missed out. I didn't get to see him. You'll see him. He's coming again. He's going to make all things new. And how does the Bible end? The Bible ends with John the Apostle telling us I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. Christian, don't you long for that day? I'm, I'm sick of the former things, frankly. I'm ready for them to pass away. So when we celebrate the advent of our Lord, Christmas, the the coming of Christ in the world, we are also celebrating in hope that future glorious day where Emmanuel will dwell with us forever. And we won't have to worry with sin or viruses or Satan or any of that anymore for the former things will have passed away. Christian, that is a reason to rejoice today. Thank God his name is Emmanuel. Friend, the Lord Jesus wants to lift up your weary head this day. He wants to fix your eyes on him. He wants to speak words of grace to you through his gospel. He wants to say to you, I am your beloved and you are mine I bought you with my blood. Everything I have and everything I am is yours. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am your savior. I'm your redeemer. I am your God. And I will love you and I will keep you and I will be with you forever. For that is my name. The only response for us is to say, blessed be his glorious name. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we give you praise and thanks that you have loved us even to the point of death, death on the cross, that you've loved us in rising for our justification, that you've loved us by interceding on the throne of God, that you have set down at the father's right hand. As our high priest. And you have loved us with the promise that you are coming again. To save all of those who are eagerly waiting for you. Oh Lord, help us to know your love this day. And help us to delight and rejoice in you all of our days. We ask this in your name. And for your glory. Amen.